That was interesting because adding Mintio that you mentioned, she used the word internet nation states, which kind of triggered all the economics and politics side of me. But I thought it was a perfect encapsulation of both the upside, but also the challenges. The upside obviously is that, like you said, there are digital economies that are happening because if you're spending in aggregate millions of hours in a game, and there's real value, right? If you spend millions of hours digging holes in the ground outside, that is a real digital economy, especially if I'm trading the fruits of digging real ground. So I think there is a right to say a digital economy value value being generated and value being appreciated by other folks. The point of currency is that different digital nation states have to recognize each other's currency. And that's a big problem. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseah.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkas.co.id. Morning, Shuyen. What a big weekend we had together. Oh my God. I had so much in-person time with you. I don't know how I can handle it. <laughs> Back to uh, Zoom and across multiple time zones. We had the wonderful Hasafan uh, investor camp in Bali. And I thought it was a wonderful experience, a very camp-like experience. People just hanging out. I don't know and... what kind of camps you went to when you were a kid, but were they at the Sofitel? Definitely not. It was much more like tents and stuff like that. And the sweating it out and... <laughs> This sounds much nicer and also eat a lot. We're grown ups now. We're grown ups and the food's so nice. I just eat so much sambal. There's all the different types of sambal there with the carbs and fried rice. It's terrible. Uh, (laughs) I was supposed to eat the meats and stuff. That's all I wanted was the different types of sambal, right? What did you take away from the Hustle Fund camp? I mean, I think the camp was a little bit more global. So I think it was interesting to get perspectives from investors from around the globe. I think we had folks coming in from the Middle East, India, US, even Australia, New Zealand. And so I think taking people's temperature on what's going on in their home markets. I think there continues to be a lot of regional energy. I think particularly in the Middle East, that stood out for me. Learned about a ton of different government initiatives there in various countries around innovation and startups. I think one thing common across all of the nascent ecosystems is that there is a real desire to connect to larger ecosystems Mm. in that like capital alone is not enough. They actually want to learn more about what's going on in other people's ecosystems. What can they bring back into their own regions? So that I thought was like an interesting sort of positive note. And then I think on the investor side, there continues to be interest in the asset class, but a lot of people are newer to it. Mm. And so they're figuring out, at least on the family office side, how do I start doing this? What should my allocation be? How do I even think about it? Moving my more conservative family into thinking about such assets. So I think we were sort of at the early parts of some of those conversations and it was useful for them to meet other people in the space and get exposed a little bit to the conversations. And I had several people tell me like, hey, are you 
you're going to do this next year. I can think of people I want to bring so they can also have this learning experience, which I thought was pretty positive. But I'm a very biased insider, right? It was our event. So I'm kind of curious to get your perspective, Jeremy. Also, it's the first time we're doing it in Asia. So we're kind of like working out the kinks in it. But yeah, you go to a lot of conferences and you talk to lots of people all the time, obviously. So it'd be great to hear what your experience of it was like and what you think we could have done better. Yeah, I thought it was nice actually to meet the Hasafan team. So I've been following many people sharing at the conference that they've been following Elizabeth Yin on Twitter. And obviously a lot of us also know Eric Ban as well. So it's just nice to meet them in person and see what the similarities are in terms of knowledge between the online persona versus their in-person. And yeah, everybody is remarkably the same, I think. And I thought it was just interesting to get to know someone in person. We were joking earlier a little bit about celebrities and you're right, you know, Elizabeth was, I realized, like, oh, I feel, this is that parasocial piece where I feel like I know her, but she doesn't know me at all. <laughs> so so you're interesting they conversation. are there. similar? What? They are similar to their online personas? I think so in terms of their knowledge and so forth. I think Elizabeth does come across as more introverted compared to her Twitter because Twitter feels like everybody's an extrovert on Twitter. Because you're just, Here's my tweet storm and then you look, read it and you're like, oh, you're extroverted. But to me at least, Elizabeth comes across a little bit differently, but the knowledge, the depth of understanding is the same. So that was an interesting dynamic. But like I said again, parasocial, right? So I feel like I know her. She doesn't know me at all. Speak of parasocial as well, we also had the same experience. So shout out to Aaron Fu and Chandan Deep, who both listened to the podcast. And again, it's a similar dynamic where I felt like I didn't know them, but they kind of knew me already from the podcast. So it was an interesting dynamic where we're kind of like catching up. But it was just awesome to hear about how they were commuting to work and using the time to catch up on Southeast Asia news as well. And then the last thing that came up for me was I think there was a lot of learning from you shared Moses Lowe from Zendit, Gabby Dizone from YGG. And I thought it was just nice to sit down and I don't know what's the word, have that slightly deeper conversation from a more private group. And so there's a lot of serendipity to happen. I also had the opportunity to hear from Arthur, from Gobel. And I thought it was interesting just to hear about, for example, polycentric urban design and how he believes that's going to change the patterns of transportation and how that therefore changes, how autonomous requirements are going to be for driving and how he thinks about the space and terms of logistics. So there's a lot of like, I don't know what's the word. I think I realized that in my daily life, I'm just very focused on getting stuff done. <laughs> Meet this founder, write this investment memo, build the system. And I thought it was just nice to have that serendipity where it's something that I don't normally listen to just kind of comes in and then kind of like sparks off some stuff, right? And so I think you saw me taking notes on my iPhone app. Uh, I would just be like, okay, random tidbits that were really weird from a work perspective, but actually really interesting from a personal perspective. I thought that was a wonderful experience to have. Yeah, That's on true. That, I on, met a airline yeah. entrepreneur. Oh, wow. You know, I don't meet a lot of airline entrepreneurs. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of them in the US and I never really thought a lot about airlines. Um, yeah. But he explained why, which is basically um, the US has like 90% of the world's airports. <laughs> wow. So basically it's like an overbuilt infrastructural item. So there's right. just like way more airports in the US, right. which actually enables people to do these sort of startup-y airlines or more limited regional types of things because you can do smaller infrastructural types of efforts. Because he was saying, so he ran a subscription airline and we were talking about how there were certain corridors that seemed like they should have railways. So it's like SFLA, Melbourne, Sydney, and why they didn't and how they were. And so they had launched in California as a subscription air service. And it was using all of these secondary and tertiary airports to create these routes and make it affordable. And he said, yeah, we looked into Melbourne and Sydney because it's like one of the busiest corridors and it'd actually be ripe for a subscription service. But the problem is that they don't have enough airport infrastructure to mm. kind of do that. So yeah, so you like think about that and you're like, oh, that's a really weird fact. 
why is it like you know kind of goes back to like yeah. post-world war ii construction and like what people were doing it's there's all this like fun tidbits where you're like i don't think about these industries or <laughs> regions very much in my day-to-day yeah. and then you kind of have a little note in your brain so that the next time you see something like that you're like oh what what is it this is that why this <laughs> thing happens um, so that was kind of cool but I, I like to collect weird facts yeah and i think it was interesting as well to meet for example sunny vu as well right he's like the former founder the misfit wearables and i thought it was really interesting because i actually remembered he was just chatting a little bit about how he was building this company for wearables and how they sold the fossil and i was thinking to myself you know what i remember being that nerd in the quantified self movement <laughs> in part of the clubs i would be discussing the various trackers and for me i used to buy other different wearables versions of it the ones that worked the one that didn't work i never eventually got a misfit actually interestingly back in the day but it was just interesting to hear the story and i thought it was cool to meet someone behind a tech pro product that I was evaluating and have, right? And I think that's one of the big things I always remember. I think one of the valuable things of some of these conferences is that I think you get to meet your heroes or not necessarily people that you think are heroes per se right now, but heroic folks that you meet and you're just like, oh, they're human, right? They have their own personal interests. They have own history. They can share a bit of blood and sweat and tears that goes into building something. And so I think that removes a divide between something that's visionary, imaginary about this person and brings the product to life from that perspective. So I thought it's a nice thing that happens a lot of time as well. Yeah, Sonny is awesome. I mean, he speaks 12 languages. What? And, well? Well, he has a PhD in linguistics, but I think that doesn't necessarily mean you speak 12 languages, obviously. <laughs> and he is really into the study of right. language. And so he was talking about how he learns it, which ones are hard, and all the different things that he speaks. But he grew up speaking Hebrew which I think is very unusual. And then everyone's like, Hebrew? Yeah. Aren't you Vietnamese? It's all very confusing. Powerful combo. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I don't know. People are just doing their thing, right? And I think for all founders on their journey, you're just doing your thing. You're like pursuing your passion. You're interested in stuff. You're making it work. And then hopefully at the end of the day, you've built something big and significant. And then we invite you to conferences and you tell the grand narrative of how it all came together. Yeah, and speaking about being invited to be a speaker, as was a fourth, this month has been crazy in Singapore and Southeast Asia. We've had F1, we had Token 2049. We had Super Return. We had the New Street Asia, P- Asia PEBC conference. Must be missing a few as well along the way. They got bundled Forbes. In. Forbes as well. And then also all the various side events that everyone's organizing by Elta, by Gunderson, so on so forth. So yeah, it was a crazy month. Everyone's flying into Singapore to get it done. I felt like it's quite an interesting dynamic because I know it just gets bigger and bigger every year since the pandemic. So what do you think about that, Shian? I think it's great in that you can have a huge density of meetings in a short period of time but it can get really overwhelming because everyone has the same idea and so I'm I'm usually in bed by 10 and now it's like (laughs) oh no you have three events after dinner you have to go to it's like how is this even possible but I think there's a lot of good initial conversations that come out of it or reconnects with people which then set up like a good set of follow-up meetings later because obviously it's impossible to do any proper meetings during because everyone is running around yeah so token I think was a lot more institutional this year and I think there was a lot more discussion on use cases. Um, Someone told me they had just come from Korea and they're like, oh, in Korea, they were talking to gaming companies. Everyone is talking about building. In Singapore, everyone only talks about money. And I think that maybe is testament to the growth as a financial center concentration of investors. But I think it's good. I think it's good for Singapore to have places and times of year where people congregate and do deals and 
make relationships. I think that just continues to help build the density of relationships in this ecosystem, um, especially for people who aren't based here full time to keep building that network out in the world. Yeah, definitely agree about how everything has been back to back. I think there's also now think about it, the Milken Institute conference. So everything has been interesting. It's obviously wonderful, most directly economically for Singapore, for the hospitality and mice industry. Everybody who's like an MC or doing sound equipment or hotels has been doing a great month. And actually one interesting thing I learned is that Singapore actually does have an industry incentive. So basically what they're trying to do is that they actually compensate and reward organizers for structuring events that keep attendees around in Singapore for longer because every day is that then generates more additional local spending and stimulus for the economy. So there's actually obviously transparent to government, but it's not obvious to the attendee that there's an incentive structure to structure those after parties, those weekend parties, that bonus Monday mixer, all those things that are not part of the official event, but it's nice to create that tail before and after to encourage people to come in earlier or to leave later. So I thought it was nice, like you said, for example, I had an old uh, Harvard MBA classmate. He came in for F1 with his old sec- high school buddies. And then we just had a wonderful conversation and catch up. So I think it really actually plays not only to hospitality, but also, like you said, the finance industry, some of the synergy and the tech, because that capital allocation is very much also a relationship-driven one. And it's you can do a lot with Zoom, but sometimes you just need an in-person to get it really kickstarted. So yeah, lots of also interesting news that we saw and heard a little bit. I think one big one that we saw was that Vertex Ventures, which is backed by Singapore Stamasek, closed a fresh fund of $541 million. So congratulations, Vertex. <laughs> Any thoughts about that? I think it's great. Obviously, they're a longtime player in the space. They've got multiple funds across multiple geographies, very institutional investor, and it's great that there's continued energy and interest and they're able to close even in this environment, which is challenging. So I think that continues to be a, a small piece of bright news. Yeah, I think it's also a big part because they have an anchor LP with Tomasic. So I think that's been obviously an important part of it. But also I think they've done a solid job in terms of investing not just in Singapore, but across the region as well. I know Carmen Yuan is there as well. So I thought it's a nice dynamic in terms of, if we look at their investment approach, I think one thing I noticed is that they've been quite thoughtful about their approach, which is important in the region as well. In other news as well, yeah. Global Foundries opened its new 4 billion Singapore chip fabrication plants. I always like how all these chip fat plants never have a million dollar thing. It's never a $10 million chip fat plant, right? So it's $4 billion. So that was interesting as well. It's a third, I think their third facility in Singapore. Yeah. I think it's great, right? And we obviously know the strategic importance of chips in the current ongoing trade war. It's their third facility in Singapore. I think it goes online maybe 25, 26. And so obviously they're forecasting that demand will pick up. And I think, what is it? They're the third largest fab behind mm-hmm. TSMC and Samsung. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy, right? It's four billion dollar fab. And I think it's what, a thousand jobs. It just sort of speaks to how mechanized these things are and how specialized. <laughs> but those are great. Yeah. Those are great high quality manufacturing jobs. Yeah. I think what's interesting is exactly like you said, is we've po- talked about it in previous episodes about obviously the US and China dynamics that are happening in terms of chips. And I think there's a interesting dynamic where obviously Singapore and other locations are providing that resiliency in case there's conflict, but also it's kind of like a friend jarring dynamic that the US wants. I thought what was interesting, I was just chatting with someone recently. I was like, you know, Singapore could have become Taiwan in terms of being the leader of chips, right? I mean, in terms of industrial policy 20 years ago. Do you think we could have actually? Thought, Do you think we sold chartered too early? I mean, I, you know, I think it would have required EDB to realize that China and US could, as in, it's too Taiwan centric and then there's conflict that will cause this to uncouple, right? Otherwise, the truth is Shenzhen and Taiwan is actually a really good combo of chips. Yeah, that whole combo. Is, it was the right decision years ago. But I was just talking. It was interesting that technically we actually were in a similar dynamic where we could have created our own silicon shield. Technically. Anyway, it would have been Singapore yeah. and Penang. You know? And 
It would have been Singapore and Malaysia combo together instead of uh, Shenzhen, Taiwan. Shall we go back? Yeah. Let me just say that. Yeah. Three. So what's interesting is that someone and I was eating Peranakan for lunch and we we're having this speculation. It was like, hey, you know, could Singapore actually have been that Taiwan in the sense of building out that silicon shield? Could they have become the nexus for chips? Because there was a period of time when Singapore was one of the market leaders for chip production years and years ago, decades ago. And I think obviously there was a decision, I think, from an industrial policy perspective to focus on from the perspective of higher value add in terms of software engineering and other dynamics that felt like a better fit for Singapore's silicon and chip fabrication is not easy, right? You need lots of water, you need lots of materials, you need lots of space. Also, I need to build a whole industry around it. But I think we actually were in a position to do it and we made a decision not to do it for understandable reasons from my perspective. What do you think, Shrian? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. So yeah. I think um, for people who don't know, the government had brought done a big tech transfer to start chartered semiconductor in the yeah. 80s. And that was like a period of time when we actually were pretty big chip maker and i think we sold it in what 2009 yeah around there yeah something like that yeah and so yeah i think it's like an interesting question if we had thought that there would be a potential that the u.s china relationship would play out to be more antagonistic than it was at that time yeah then would there have been strategic value to retaining it over and above just the sort of like number of jobs type of question right and then i think you know it's intel amd they have a bunch of plants in malaysia as well so Would there have been value to us being the Silicon Shield versus Taiwan Shenzhen? Yeah. And you probably can make an argument that may be true, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's really, I mean, 2020 hindsight. <laughs> 100%. I think it's very hard. I think if you could read some of the real political scientists from earlier, you could potentially have gamed out for the first order effects, second order effects. I think even back in 2000s, people were worried. But I think, like you said, the 2000s was really kind of like the peak of US China relations. So it felt like it was a no brainer for yeah, globalization. Yeah. Exactly. It's working. Everyone's yeah, everybody. benefiting. <laughs> exactly. Everybody felt like everything will go to the lowest cost producer. So it felt like, I remember 2000 was like so optimistic. So it would have taken a real contrarian person to have been able to say like, okay, we believe that it is the cheapest to manufacture chips in Taiwan and Shenzhen and, you know, with the Fabs and Foxconn, etc. So the world is going to require the source of chips. And so that could be Singapore. That would require a lot of, it's not just economic thinking in terms of industry and manufacturing, but also uh, political point of view which is interesting I mean there there are still chips here right obviously yeah. Global Foundries Micron is here yeah. and a number of others but it would be interesting to get on someone from the semis business to kind of talk through the history of that yeah and I think they're really interesting folks sort of an inside perspective 100% I think if you look at the top 100 companies on NASDAQ and you look at them a lot it's just semiconductor chip fabrication <laughs> companies right and I think people forget even though we're always talking about the latest digital software the latest crypto a lot of it just runs on fundamental hardware. You've got to make chips, you've got to make graphic cards. So it's kind of crazy when I was doing the analysis to be like, wow, there's so many of these flat out hardware companies that just got there. Yeah. Totally. Well, talking about stuff that's out there as well, there's also USDC stablecoin issuer circle expands its Asia focus in a push to enter the region's flourishing payments ecosystem. This articles are coming from Asia Tech Review. So shout out to John Russell for this. Uh, so what do you think about stablecoins, crypto? Actually, this weekend was again a little bit more exposure to crypto than I had for a while because I think there's crypto winter. So I think it was interesting to see the insiders who were still thinking about it. 
it. What do you think about Web3 and crypto, Shen? I think the stablecoin use case is actually one of the best use cases in crypto. Yeah. You don't have to think very hard about people who have experienced crazy inflation right. and are sort of the victims of whatever their country's monetary policy is. They have no control. And basically, right. they see their purchasing power getting eroded. And it's very hard for them to save. So I think the stablecoin use case is a very... Case in point is like in the US, remember when everyone was trying to sell crazy amounts of yield in Latin America, which obviously has a long history of inflation. Right. Like the startups there weren't selling any yield. They were just selling like hey, you can keep the value of the thing you earned. <laughs> like that was the value proposition. So that's the difference in the setup. And we don't even have to go to Latin America. If you look at Pakistan, the thing has devalued cap over the last year. So giving people ways to save, easily convert in and out of something that can actually retain value, but also get paid. And it's case in point. There was a guest here who was part of the conference. She'd hired a babysitter for her kid mm. while she was doing activities. The babysitter was like, can you pay me to my Indonesian bank account? Yeah. I mean, it's like an American cannot pay into an Indonesian bank account. It's very hard to do this. Yeah. And so what did she have to do? She had to find an Indonesian person, be like, here is cash. Can you please send this money over to this other person? Right. Because the babysitter had left and wanted to be paid. Imagine if we just all had crazy idea. We all had crypto wallets and we all carried (laughs) USDC or whatever stable coin. And we could have just transacted like that. But it was very funny because she was like, oh yeah, just go to your mobile banking app and type in this number and send me the money. And it's like, no lady, it doesn't work that way. She doesn't have an Indonesian banking app and Venmo is not going to work here. It was one good illustration just happened. Yeah, you're reminding me about some transactions I have to do. And every time I transfer to a different country, it's like a $25 service charge. It's oh my like, God, the wire? Yeah, the wire. So brutal. So brutal. So and, brutal. And I'm just like, why? And I think you, you forget how much friction, how much cost there is in that, especially when you're an individual. Obviously, if you're a business, you can negotiate it down. Your sum, if you're transferring $100,000, then what is $25 anyway? <laughs> but if you're doing something small and sum, effectively, it's a regressive tax where it's a higher percentage of the quantum for the smaller folks or the poorer folks who are doing the transactions in general. So that yeah. service fee was like pushing me back to become a web tree bull. It's weird though. You know, DBS, if you do it personally, there's no fee. Yeah. It's the inverse. But if you do it out of your business account, they'll charge you the wire fee. Yeah. And you're a small business, you have no negotiating power. They won't even entertain you. Yeah. So it makes sense. You're locked it's, in. It's completely exasperating. Yeah. Well, well, I think it's interesting to see Circle obviously expand. I think they're out hiring lots of different folks. In fact, we had one of the Circle executives had previously came on the podcast sharing about how he likes to hire former founders because he himself was a former founder as well. So I thought it was interesting just to see that there are more jobs because crypto winter has been painful. But I thought it was interesting to sit down with everybody and also feel like crypto might be back. It's like, I sit down and it's like, I think stablecoin is a big one, but I'm not sure what else there is in terms of utility. Obviously, I think games and fractional ownership is a big thesis that's out there right now as well. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, games is an easy one in that virtual economies already exist in games. Right. It's not like you don't have to change people's behavior there. They already want the better sword or the better car or whatever it is. And that's been around for 20 years. And the big innovation is, can you make it transportable? My value that I've created because I've played 5,000 hours in this game isn't trapped by some game studio wants to devalue or inflate. I could trade it out of the game to somebody else. And I think there's like creative possibilities, which is like, hey, can assets work across multiple games? And that could be an interesting idea, but that's the sort of core mechanic of can I get value out of things that I've already built and can I do it in a more open ecosystem is pretty interesting and not that hard to think about. The real world asset one is often more of a legal problem than a technology problem Yeah, in thinking about what is a security 
what is the regulation around trading securities, KYC? I think one of our speakers, Min, was like, just because something is tokenized doesn't mean it's not KYC. You can yeah. put KYC on top of some of these things. No one is advocating for total anonymous trading. Yeah. And so imagine if instead of your house, imagine if you could tokenize your own house and your parents wanted to help you with the down payment, but essentially they were just like, buying a percent of the equity of your house for you, right? right? And they could benefit the upside. You can imagine that when you sold your house, the proceeds would all be distributed automatically to the holders of that token. right? And you wouldn't have to actually do any side contracts to enforce it, or they right. wouldn't have to do any side contracts to enforce it, right? It would right. just sort of, like, that's what it would mean to own a house. It's like you would own all the tokens right. and you would pay out that thing. Yeah. Software would send the things appropriately. And you can imagine that with rental too. I've seen so many startups with this. A group of friends wants to share a vacation home and rent it out for income, but also use it themselves. Let's make a startup to do this. And it always just ends up being a huge cluster because there's yeah. no liquidity. One friend wants to get out. The others, they're all in an LLC that bought this thing. Yeah. But it's like, if you thought about it, actually, there are easier ways to do that. And crypto offers some ways that would ease that. But the hard part isn't necessarily the technology. The technology enables that. But the hard part of those businesses is the legal. Right. And so I think that still has some ways to go. But people are tokenizing commercial buildings. Yeah. People are tokenizing funds. I think there's a lot of work being done there. But I think it's always one of those things. Who could go the distance with the regulations and fight through that? Because it's always hard to change the status quo. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because adding Mintio that you mentioned, she used the word internet nation states, which kind of triggered all the economics and politics side of me, which was like, but I thought it was a perfect encapsulation of both the upside, but also I think the challenges of this, which is I think the upside obviously is that, like you said, there are digital economies that are happening because if you're spending in aggregate millions of hours in a game and there's real value, right? If you spend millions of hours digging holes in the ground outside, that is a real digital economy, especially if I'm trading the fruits of digging real ground. So I think there is a right to say a digital economy, value being generated and value being appreciated by other folks. I think that's very true. So I think that reminds me of the international state. But exactly like you said, is the point of currency is that different digital nation states have to recognize each other's currency, right? And that's a big problem, right? I think we saw that. Always one of my favorite parts, I was like my friend's antique shop, Inshan, all right? And she was like, there was this shelf full of different currencies. So it was like a closing down sale. And it was like the Warren Kingdom of China. And there was like 20 different Different types of currency that were available. Some were in the shape of swords, some were in the shape of knives, some were in the shape of coins. But there were all these different currencies and different things. And if interchangeability and all that stuff, it was just tough. And a big part of it was that because there's no law, like you said, that governs the property rights, but also the currency rights and conversion, they created to some point that there was some level of portability, but no true conversion. And you need military force to enforce the law. And I think that's the interesting dynamic of these internet nation states is they don't have soldiers and so they can't have a court, but there's no way to enforce any of the judgments around property. And obviously, I know some of the digital smart contracts are supposed to provide that dynamic where you can provide law without force because it's all done automatically. But we see over and over again, like FTX and so forth, when something really goes wrong, I think we end up defaulting to some extent. At least the real life nation states come back in to step in and try to sort it out, right? So the SAC is working with the FTX dynamic and so, so forth. So I think it was a really good metaphor that helped me encapsulate a lot of my concerns, I think, about how to think about Web3, some aspects of it. Yeah, it's always easy to go to this theoretical phase and it's like yeah. at the end of the day it has just to be what is the use case who is actually going to use this right but i don't know i think you can leverage existing regulations to right. this it's like this interoperability question which is right. like right now a lot of countries have their own individual systems that are not that interoperable right. everyone has their own set of rules that govern how things right. work and so can code bridge some of that yeah and make it easier to interoperate across yeah. geography 
Yes, 100%. Because uh, not everybody uses the USD, which is like the petrodollar that has been systemized and structured. So that is the default currency. And we see some economies are just reading yeah. newspaper like Latin M is starting to, some of them are starting to dollarize the economy again because they, they don't have their own currency under control. And that's very much, again, talking about the 1990s and 2000s, that's a very 1990s and 2000s uh, phenomenon to have back again to see the dollarization of your local currency. But interesting to see that happen. In I mean, other news as well. practically dollarized. Sorry? Venezuela is practically dollarized. Yeah. So there's official dollarization and there's unofficial dollarization, right? Also, I think what's interesting is now a lot of people are using Web3. So instead of dollarization in terms of USD cash, they're dollarizing US, USDC, right? So that's one of the interesting dynamics as well to see people. Yeah, but I think there's also flows, right? Yeah. Like we have a portfolio company. They operate in Venezuela and they were saying something like a very high percentage the accounts credit cards that were linked actually have U.S. zip codes. Mm, and so that's like the diaspora yeah. sending money into the country via USD and they denominate their prices in USD. Right. So they're like, I'm not going to deal with this inflation, this currency risk. I'm just going to take it out by operating in USD. Yeah. I think we saw uh, Parallax, right? A Philippines-based startup uh, that actually does this as well. They use crypto as stable coins for cross-border payments and they re recently raised uh, $4.5 million. So congratulations to the Parallax team. And I think there's a lot of folks that are out there trying to retackle this cross-border dynamic as well. Uh, on similar crypto news, Thai bank Kasikon has gone official with a new $100 million fund for Web3 and AI. So that's interesting to see uh, more investments by some financial institutions into Web3. I think it's a good way as a corporate VC to be able to see uh, the next wave of innovation, but also get a little bit of ownership stake, but also uh, potentially be a strategic acquisition down the road. So I think interesting to see a lot of incumbents basically start to deploy and explore the space. What are your thoughts, Shane? I think makes sense for banks to do, right? I mean, yeah. there's so many financial use cases. It's kind of the core of the crypto innovation. And so for them to kind of have an advanced look at what are possibilities for them to extend their read, uh, provided functionality to their consumers, customers, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think in general, I'm always a little wary on CVC types of initiatives because they have to continue to stay interested in it. <laughs> and 10 years is a long time to stay interested in something, especially if you think about management team priority changes and things like that. I think in financial services, it's probably a little bit more in line. Right. But I mean, I think the, the counter piece of news is Ant Financial had a $100 million crypto fund, Ant, yeah. and they just said they're unwinding. And there were some management challenges there. But I think if it isn't in the course of operating business, you always have the risk that it's just like, oh, it's too much effort. You know, we can't pay attention. We need to prioritize. Let's just focus on the main thing. Yeah, makes sense. And also financial, right? It's a Chinese entity primarily. And so obviously China has banned a lot of the crypto cases. So in that scenario, also there isn't a geographic match. And there's also regulatory risk to explain to the regulators every year to be like, we don't do Web3, but here's this fund that does investments. I think it's just, like you said, too much bother for the management team. Um, I think that also reminds me of Sizon Capital, which is a great v fintech VC fund across Southeast Asia and also Asian world that's based out of Singapore. But for them, they're backed by Credit Sizon, right? Which is the Japanese card issue as well. So I think there's a lot of synergy because you have cash and you have captive or bank statements and then you're just saying like, hey, is there a way for us to deploy this in an effective way but also provides that sensor network for what's coming down the road as well. I think what's also interesting in terms of news is that the Bioformis CEO stepped down. So not much news but Deal Street Asia broke the news. So I thought it was just a, something that would come up but I'm not sure uh, what you think about it. I actually know very little about what's going 
on. I just saw the article. I think that as companies get bigger and approach IPO, investors often try to make a determination around whether the current team can take it the whole way and whether or not there is an opportunity to augment the team with folks who have managed larger organizations or have done the IPO before. I think you see that most in the CFO role. Generally, people will try to insert a CFO who has public market IPO experience. And then often you can see it in other C-level folks as well. I think some founders also sometimes decide they don't want to be a public company CEO. It's pretty different in terms of being held accountable to the quarterly earnings and the amount of compliance that's required to run a a publicly traded business. And so they might have said, hey, I've had a good run. I don't have any back channel here, but it's probably a combination of a lot of these things. Yeah, I think I'll just read out the facts on this. And I'm reading primarily from the Dew Street article. So Kudip Singh Rajput, founder and CEO, uh, has stepped down two months after the company laid off 120 employees worldwide. Ben Wenamaker of General Atlantic is taking over. He most recently served as vice president of enterprise strategy at Humana and has held leadership roles at Aetna and Walmart. Wanamika has also been appointed a board of directors. In parallel, Bolik Machmuda, chief medical officer at Biopharmis, has also resigned. And Kuldeep Singh Rajput continues to remain as a board director. So these are the facts that are reported by article. And then I'm not sure what's going on, but I think it'll be interesting because Biopharmis yeah. has... Yeah. They're attacking the U.S. market. It's a guy who has a ton of U.S market yeah. experience, especially it sounds like with insurers who handle reimbursement, which is a nightmare of a right. system in the US. And so could make a ton of sense just to bring in someone with that background to help the next stage of growth. Yeah, I think it, this is one of the few Southeast Asia unicorns that's out there. And so I kind of wish the whole team luck and continue to wave the flag a little bit because I think their success is also quite key to the ecosystem continuing to mature and be able to provide better growth over the future. So based on this entire conversation from your perspective, what's one thing that you think about on your mind as you go into the next few weeks? Oh gosh, I have one tactical one and one sort of, I just have a ton of follow-ups, right? I've had so many conversations in the last 10 days that I just need to follow up and I've been taking yeah. notes and everything. I need to do all my follow-ups. But I think it's just useful sometimes to step back because you're so in the grind of the day-to-day that sometimes when you step back and you kind of reflect on what's going on in the broader ecosystem, it can make you more hopeful. So I think because of the funding slowdown and the crypto winter, I think often when you're in the day-to-day, people can feel a bit down in the dumps. But being able to take a moment, take a step back can give you perspective on how much progress has been made, what things there are still to be optimistic about and I think just connecting with people who are doing interesting things gives you that kind of energy and so kind of want to take that positive energy forward how about for you uh for me I kind of realized I miss my little kitties <laughs> so I think when I think about this coming week I'm trying to think to how to similar to you I think do a lot of work meet a lot of people but also squeezing that family time as well and I think it's interesting because I really never had that issue three years ago before my kids arrived you know I would be like yeah I would happily sacrifice my personal sleep and health to work is this like a binary thing right it's like you can bypass and skip your friends and all these other things and you just focus on work but now there's this family dynamic and I thought it was interesting because I was traveling to and fro and I was like doing the video calls with the kids and obviously I've been traveling obviously over the past few years but I thought I kind of felt it a little bit more this time around so I thought it was an interesting sensation to have bring your kids next year Jeremy <laughs> I think some folks did. I thought it was pretty smart. And then they were like, oh, you know, then they bring the wife or husband as well. And there's a nice dual combo, dual double track. I saw someone's yeah. kid, Sunny Vu's kid, right? With the badge as well. And I was like, oh, the youngest attendee. Big things are in store for this kid. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah, next year we can see if there's enough interest or people will self-organize anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's a kids club and your kids are small. They're not going to miss any school. It could be a one, two, then you kind of get the best of both worlds. All right. See you around. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.